Hello and welcome to Order Order, Mail Plus Radio's politics podcast. With me, Simon Walters, Assistant Editor of the Daily Mail. And me, Amanda Platel, Daily Mail columnist. Coming up, Boris may have been a naughty boy this year, but he's got his Christmas wish. Britain is going to the polls. But it's not all about Brexit and elections. The Labour Party's been split over a major issue. Are giraffes gay? We take a closer look. And The Week Explained. Why is Workington Man so important in this election? And more importantly, will the snowflake generation even turn up for the vote? Don't forget, you can email us with your questions during the week at orderorder at dailymail.co.uk. And we'll attempt to answer as many as we can during the show. But first, political parties are preparing for a general election campaign after MPs voted for a December the 12th election. Boris Johnson said he's ready to fight a tough election campaign, while the Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, said the snap poll gave a -a once-in-a-generation opportunity to transform the country. Earlier, I spoke to Conservative MP Andrew Bridgen about what the Conservatives' prospects in an election would be. Boris will say that the last thing he wanted was a general election, but he has no choice because it became apparent, and I think I've realised it probably even 12 months ago, that you were never going to get a meaningful Brexit through the current House of Commons. So the only thing we need to do now is to get legitimacy for this Parliament, a big injection of democracy, and the only way to get that and rebalance the Parliament is a general election. Given that Boris got the uh, withdrawal agreement reopened, he got the backstop removed, he rewrote the political declaration from ever close in uh, uh, regulatory alignment with the EU to a much looser free trade agreement, given that he did all that, with the Ben Act hanging over him, I think he's done miracles. Um, uh, what do you think of Philip Hammond's view? Uh, well, he has been consistently wrong. He was the main... Uh, member of the government that that said that um, we'd never reopen the withdrawal agreement. It was interesting, with Theresa May's government, the only uh, piece of legislation regarding the EU that got a majority in the House was the Brady Amendment to get the backstop removed. And the fact is that with advice from Philip Hammond, Theresa May and her advisers never even asked the EU to remove the backstop. They weren't purged, they purged themselves. If I say to you, Simon, if you do this, I'm going to punch you on the nose, that's different to me just punching you on the nose, isn't it? The Prime Minister said to Hammond, and Rudd and all the rest of them, look, if you vote against the government, I will take the whip off you. And they they had that warning and they still did it. Well, then they had the whip taken off them. Talking on, okay, uh, I accept your argument is you say effectively you're you're now, it's your position is now the sender ground, not Hammond's. Well, 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 when we formed the ERG, one of our WhatsApp groups was the real mainstream. And I think what we've seen, and look at the polling since Boris Johnson became Prime Minister and his policies more reflected those, you would say, of the, the European Research Group, we're now at 40 points in the polls. Mm, that's true. Can I just, on the subject of the but right, you're going to have... I think you dismissed that, that rise no, in the I polls there, Simon. Slightly. Andrew, I, I've never dismissed you, especially since you said that you're, you, you, you might punch me on the nose if I do. So I won't. But, I, but I would give you warning first. If you do that again, I'll punch you on the nose. That, that would be... Yeah. Last question for you, Andrew. I want you to put your money where your mouth is and make a forecast for the, the Tory majority in the next general election? It's going to be a fascinating general election because there's going to be a lot of uh, regional uh, trends. No fudging here, Andrew, no fudging. I'm just giving the background, just laying out my cards. Scotland's going to be different to the rest of the UK. London's going to be different. Maybe in the southeast and southwest, the Lib Dems are going to make a few gains in, in more Remain areas. 
I think the Conservative campaign is going to rest in the Midlands and the North, and I think we're going to take considerable numbers of seats from uh, Labour MPs, and judging by the expressions on some of the Labour MPs currently in the Houses this today, the prospect... What are their expressions? Well, it, it, the last time I saw an expression like that, it was a rabbit in the headlights of my car. <laughs> just, if, before, just before it went under the wheel, actually. So, uh, roadkill, that's what you're saying, it's going it's to happen to Labour. Um, there is going to be a certain amount, of, in every election, there's a certain amount of, shall we call it, collateral damage. I think we're going to lose five or six or seven seats to the Lib Dems. I think we're going to pick up 50 or 60 seats off the Labour Party, and I think we're going to end up with a majority of around about 80. Fascinating stuff from Andrew Bridge in there, Simon. I mean, incredible that he thinks that there's going to be, they'll take 50 to 60 seats off Labour. I guess they have to, but the polls aren't indicating that. But what a funny expression saying that when Labour MPs said that they were going to, um, uh, they were going to call the election, they were like, rabbits caught in the headlights of his car before he ran over them. I mean, this is Boris in Wonderland stuff. Winning 60 seats off Labour. I mean, I'm not quite sure who the white rabbit is here, but I'm afraid Andrew's top of the list for me. Well, but he's right. And the white rabbit was bonkers, you know. Well, maybe, but... He... Oh, sorry, I don't mean that, Andrew, I don't mean you're bonkers. <laughs> <laughs> well, but he is right. It is going to be a brutal campaign. Yeah. I don't think anybody doubts that. The, 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 the stakes are higher than they've been any time I could remember in my lifetime. And it's going to be a brutal campaign. It's going to be dirty. It will be dirty campaign. Be bloody. There's going to be scrutiny of all the leaders, Boris Johnson, Jeremy Corbyn, and we've got the election debates probably to look forward to, which are going to be pretty rough. It, it, Bridgen's right. Whether the, he's his um, forecast of an 80 majority seems a little bit on the optimistic side. Um, I would think the Conservatives would probably settle for a majority of... Maybe not single digits, but a majority of 20, which is pretty much where Theresa May was before she blew it. That's all they need. Actually, that's all they need, provided Boris doesn't go sacking lots of his MPs in <laughs> when he gets back in. No, look, I, I, can't, I cannot see they'll get a majority of that much. It's just unfeasible. I also caught up with John Mann. Now, John Mann is a former Labour MP, recently resigned as an MP, uh, mainly because he doesn't like Jeremy Corbyn. And John Mann is Jewish and he feels very strongly that Corbyn has failed to deal with anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. And John Mann was appointed uh, by the last Conservative Prime Minister, Theresa May, as the government's anti-Semitism czar. And I spoke to John on Tuesday, which was the day that he took his seat in the House of Lords. And you can hear us talking in Portcullis House, which is where MPs meet for a cup of tea or a sandwich, which explains the rattling in the background. Two weaknesses for Labour. Brexit's a weakness. I think the bigger weakness is Corbyn. People on the doorstep say we can't stand him. And if Jeremy Corbyn was to stand down tomorrow and a new Labour leader agreed in the next few days, Labour's chances in Northwood significantly improve. Why Why do Northern Labour voters in particular not like Jeremy Corbyn? You'd think he stands for workers' rights and improving low pay, all those things. You'd expect him to be popular on policy. Why don't they like him? Well, you know, I, I've had a team out on the doorstep every week for all the time I've been in there. And what they've said in the last six months is we don't trust him. He's shilly-shallying on Brexit certainly has reinforced it. And that's not a few people, that's a lot of people. The last canvas we did, 10 days ago, half the people said, 
we'll vote Labour if John Mann's the Prime Minister, the Labour leader, but we're not voting Labour if it's Jeremy Corbyn. So he has a fundamental problem. He is the problem, though I think Brexit kind of underscores that because, of course, these are primarily Brexit voting, traditionally, shall we say, Labour voting people. The, the seat that Labour must be most worried about is North East Derbyshire. Because North East Derbyshire was a traditional National Union of Mine Workers. It was the Skinner family fiefdom for, for decades. It was as old-style Labour as you could get, is old school, and it's gone Tory. And I think the candidate, the Tory, Tory MP there, Rowley, I think he's very confident he's going to hold it. And I've seen no polling indications. If I was having a bet, my bet would, would be that he would hold that. Well, if they can win North East Derbyshire, there's a whole stack of other seats, probably 30, that were once unimaginable. The problem for Labour is this. Brexit vote in my area, 70% of my constituents, or my former constituents, voted for Brexit. But the only ward that voted Remain was the strongest Tory ward. The only one. The strongest Labour vote ward voted 91% to leave. The next strongest, 89%. The next strongest after that, 87%. This is huge numbers. These are the Labour voters who voted Brexit. And Labour's kind of... It, it, it's been snubbing those people. When I announced I was standing down as an MP, I told my Labour Party members that I wasn't prepared to go on the doorstep and look people in the eye. And when they said, are you telling me, John, that if I vote for you, I should vote for Jeremy Corbyn to be Prime Minister? Are you telling me that that's what you believe? Because I don't think he is going to be a good Prime Minister. And I think for the sake of the Labour Party, I've written to him and said, stand down. I think the most likely outcome is another hung parliament, another minority government. I think that's a strong likelihood. It's interesting, Simon, isn't it, that the number of um, even traditional Labour, sort of lifelong Labour MPs, um, privately, they've, they say what John Mans just said then, that, you know, they don't, they think Jeremy Corbyn is an electoral liability. Um, he's alienating voters um, and they think that their chances are reduced with him. But he's not going to go anywhere. It's too late to change the leader. Um, I just think it's it's one of those situations where the last time people, they keep saying, well, people said he'd be rubbish at the last election, but he came out fighting, he had momentum behind him, he fought a fantastic campaign against Theresa May, but he ain't fighting Theresa May this time. He's fighting a man in Boris Johnson who is a fantastic campaigner, who's got charisma oozing out of every pore of his body um, and makes Corbyn look like a tired old bloke who should be spending more time with his leaks. Well, it, it, it is true that there are Conservative MPs like Philip Hammond who are prepared to be very critical of Boris Johnson politically and personally. But it's on a different scale in the Labour Party. And in addition to all the problems that Labour's got with being split on Brexit, they've got this issue where lots of the MPs who are standing for the Labour Party in this election don't trust and do not like Jeremy Corbyn. And I think you're going to find this being a factor in the election that quite a few of them, like John Mann, will express their opinion. And that's going to be difficult for Labour. I'd rather be dead in a ditch. Uh, we'll have a, an exit with no deal on October the 31st. Uh, and we will leave the European Union on October the 31st. We're going to fulfil the repeated promises of Parliament to the people and come out of the EU on October the 31st. No ifs or buts. Well, I've um, heard of some fairly big U-turns in my time as a political reporter, Amanda, but Boris Johnson calling an election after saying dozens, if not scores or hundreds of times 
that under no circumstances would he call an election. It's pretty amazing. The question is, is he going to pay a price for going back on a promise? Because politicians often do. You know, I really think that the narrative's moved on. Um, Boris, when Boris says, I'm going to die in a ditch, you know that he doesn't really mean that. I mean, he's not a man known for keeping his... um, promises, need we say. Uh, it's kind of his enthusiasm and the fact that that all said and done about Boris, he has delivered a deal and he has delivered a general election. And he's delivered this other wonderful message um, to the voters that it's me, Boris Johnson, against Parliament. It's me against the MPs. I'm the only man who can, you know, who can save this country. He's done it brilliantly. Yeah, but I think there will be those who will say that the, the, the issue of trust is important in politics. And I think Simon, there's no trust in politics anymore. Well, the issue, well, it's certain, and Boris Johnson hasn't done much to, to restore that trust. So I think, he, I think there's going to be a lot of questions of, about whether, whether he can be trusted, having failed to deliver that promise. But I think what, what he will hope is that, I, I think as you hinted at, that, that there is a view that even though he's broken his, his solemn promise, that he did try yep. harder than anyone to get a deal. Exactly. And I think the, some of the pollsters have said that um, politicians, if, if the voters think that a politician really has tried to deliver something genuinely and been prevented doing so from by, by other, other factors, then they are prepared to forgive him. And I think he can only hope that that's the verdict that voters draw this time. I'm sure that's what will happen. And, you know... We British, we love a trier. We love someone who gets out of that ditch, having not died, and goes and gets up off his knees and fights again. You know, he encapsulates that. Well, and then, of course, the other thing in his favour is that Jeremy Corbyn has done just as big a U-turn because just as Boris said he would get us out of, out of, out of the EU on October 31st, Jeremy Corbyn said time and time and time again he was not going to back an election because it wasn't the way to deal with it. And then... All of a sudden, after all the other smaller parties, the Lib Dems and the SNP, said they'd back one, all of a sudden, Corbyn jumped on the bandwagon. So he's done just as big a U-turn, you might say. I think the difference with Corbyn is that... um, he looked weak in taking this decision. You know, he was forced into, you know, we had the um, the Lib Dems decision with the Scottish National Party on Sunday breaking. You had um, Labour people all out over the media, all saying, we'd never do a deal, we are not going to do this. They were backfooted. Corbyn was forced into a corner and he looked weak. And I think that's the thing that, that people, that's the least attractive quality in any politician is weakness. Mm. So I, I suppose if, if someone says, oh, to Boris Johnson, well, you can't, you can't, you, I can't trust you because you broke your promise. Then Boris Johnson would say, well, you can't trust him because he broke his promise not to have an election as well. So maybe exactly. that's a score draw. Well, among all the other extraordinary political crises going on this week, the Labour Party's Shadow Equality Secretary, Dawn Butler, triggered an extraordinary public spat as she cited research showing 90% of male giraffes, she said, are attracted to their own gender and are potentially gay. Speaking at an award ceremony by the online LGBT newspaper Pink News, Ms Butler said, 90% of giraffes are gay. Let's just accept people for who they are and live as our true authentic selves. Being who you are is not a disease. The point she was making was she was trying to defend um, the teaching of homosexuality, lesbianism to, to school children, saying that 
it couldn't possibly make them gay because nobody taught giraffes to be gay. A bizarre argument, but one that she made. But what really made the, the, the route kick off into a bigger scale was one of Jeremy Corbyn's senior advisers publicly attacked Dawn Butler on Twitter and claimed she was talking completely nonsense, actually said that her remarks were homophobic and said that all the giraffes were doing was asserting their... Uh, uh, it was a sort of a male um, superiority ritual. I mean, I've heard some bizarre rows, but th- this must be the most extraordinary. But then, when, when this subject was given a wider airing, um, people referred to a book written in 1999, which I'm sure is on your bed, bedside um, uh, table, Amanda, called Biological Exuberance, Animal Homosexuality <laughs> and Natural Diversity. It's quite a page-turner. And um, the, the author claimed that um, homosexual behaviour and other sexual practices have been observed in more than 1,500 species, from uh, parrots, lions lizards, spiders, there's lesbian frogs, gay badgers, ostriches, emus, bighorn sheep, one of your favourite pets, (laughs) fruit bats, horses, and at least one in every 20 penguins. It's just, I mean, I just don't know how we get to this story. First of all, I I would dispute that giraffes could possibly be, what, 90% gay? I mean, what are they doing? Are they actually they've got little sneaky cameras out in all the in, the, in all the Saharas in Africa, looking at giraffes and checking their bits and seeing which ones are doing it with which ones? I really, I mean, the whole thing seems ludicrous. Well, well, well I don't know how gay giraffes do express <laughs> that. I, I suppose necking would be one one one. No, that, I don't. I don't think necking would count. I know. I think it's got to be a bit more significant than that. Well, according to the the, the book. Um, the, the the writer said that he he discovered same sex elephants, which fondled partners with their trunks. Well, that's a technique that um, is unfamiliar to me. <laughs> when we're talking about Westminster, what we're used to talking about is inappropriate fondling um, um, by um, um, many, usually men. Um, but we've never ever had a dispute about necking giraffes, have we? Ever. We haven't. But I, I, I'm, I'm going to bring this back to, to, to a, a political theme, Amanda, because um, apparently the most fav- famous um, uh, gay penguins uh, were Roy and Silo, who got together in the 1990s at New York Central Park Zoo uh, and were very much in love with each other. And it said that they would make mating calls to each other. And, and, and in 1999, they were found trying to hatch a rock As if it was an egg. And I think that's quite a good metaphor for the way Jeremy Corbyn is going to have to try and win this election. It doesn't seem to me that that's any proof of the gauges, that they're incredibly stupid penguins. Hatching and rock, for goodness sake. And now it's time for This Week Explained, Simon. There's been lots of talk about Workington Man. Who is he and what does he mean? Well, Workington Man is the latest in a, in a whole series of types of men and sometimes women um, that, that, that take on a symbolic, totemic role in election campaigns. I mean, the first one I can remember was 
Essex man. That was in the Thatcher years. And Essex man kind of symbolized the working class men of Essex, typically maybe a, a Ford worker at Dagenham, who would traditionally have been in a union and voted Labour, but under Margaret Thatcher, bought their council houses and became liberated, the Tories would say, and they switched. And was that like Mondeo Man or was Mondeo Man a bit later? That Well, Mondeo Man was in, was in, was in the... Um, um, the Blair, the Blair years, and and then you had um, Worcester Woman. Now, Amanda, <laughs> now excuse you were... me, I'm not hearing anything about Worcester Woman from you. I am an expert on Worcester Woman. When I was working with William Hague, um, I had this very bizarre uh, meeting with him where he said, "I need you." You know, we were talking about Worcester Woman, this target. You know, this is the kind of woman we've got to get back to the Conservative Party. She's really important. He gave me a photograph of this woman with a couple of babies under her arms and a nice sort of business suit, and he said can you go out and get hundreds of cardboard life-size cutouts of Worcester Woman made? That's what spin doctors do. Mm. It was abs- it was like it was like a, a ghoul's gallery. <laughs> we used to hand them out to constituencies as they came in to take your Worcester Woman away. They'd stick it under their arm and off they'd go. It sounds more like Blue it, Peter than and, the general election. And can I tell you, it didn't work. No, I wasn't. I, I, I was loath to remind you of the, the result of the 1997 <laughs> election. We won one extra seat. But come back to, let's go back to Workington Man. Okay, Workington Man. Workington is one of the um, northern, traditionally working class Labour seats, currently held by Labour, about a 3,000 majority. And the, these are the kind of seats that the Tories have got to win. Why have they got to win them? Because it's accepted. The Tories, who, own, who have, don't have a majority at all now, they're going into this election. They're going to lose seats in Scotland. It's accepted. They're going to lose seats to the Remain-dominated London and quite probably the southeast and southwest. So somehow they've got, they've got to win seats in Labour's heartland. And, and they'd be the, mostly Leave constituencies, wouldn't they? Yes. Where the, the working class guys voted yes, work, strong women. The, the, it's the, the, the voter they're targeting in Workington and Northern and Midland traditional Labour Leave voting towns. It's um, older, white, working class men. These are all fascinating. A lot of these Northern towns, they're very strong with rugby league, which is very strong, gritty, working class sport. And what are the issues here? It's the the issues that have been identified there as making it possible for these traditional Labour voters to switch is because they want they want Brexit. Um, they don't like Corbyn. They don't identify Corbyn. They see him as being very much London-based and remote from the traditional working class. And the other issues they value, they're quite traditional. They want security, which means stronger defence. Corbyn wants to get rid of nuclear weapons. Um, they want, they don't want tax cuts. They want their wages to, to, to go up. So if the Tories want to target those voters... They've got to, and they've started doing this. It's promised increasing the minimum wage and the working man and woman's wage, not tax cuts. And they value the NHS. And you're seeing the Tories and Johnson campaign on that. So that's going to be a key battleground. Don't you think that, I mean, what do you instinctively you feel about um, a, a die-in-the-wall uh, Labour supporter, life, and these are people who are, you know, older, um, um, lifelong Labour supporters. Do you think they could even bring themselves to vote for the Tory party? And it seems as though the Brexit party, which would be m- sort of emotionally and mentally something they might be able to vote for. But, you know, where's Farage? 
I mean, it, the, the Brexit party seems to have just slipped off a, you know, slipped, slid down a cliff, not fallen off, just sort of slowly slid away. But could someone who's voted for Labour all their life, generations of Labour voters, really vote Tory? Well, I'm I think not that, sure. that, that's going to be the issue here because I think that in a sense, they are, their, their natural instincts would mean that they are just as far away from being able to empathise with Boris Johnson as they are from their own Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn. Mm. And I think we're going to see a big battle and that, that's going to decide the election, no doubt. An attempt by Labour, the SNP and the Lib Dems to extend the vote to 16 and 17-year-olds failed in the Commons. But this is going to be one of the issues in the election. It'll be at the centre of the Liberal Democrat manifesto. Um, And I spoke to a Conservative MP, Tobias Elwood. Now, the Conservatives are very much against this idea, not least because it's considered that very few teenagers will vote for the Conservative. After all, it's not the coolest thing on a campus or the playground <laughs> to go in wearing a blue rosette. Uh, but interestingly, Tobias Elwood, as a Conservative, expressed some sympathy for the idea. When do you become an adult? It's a really good question. I mean, people are using the argument, but you can sign up for the armed forces. Yes, you, you can, yes. You can get well, you married. You can fight for your country at 16, can't you? Not quite. This oh, is now, the thing. You do speak with some experience as an ex-army officer. Well, not that I signed up at 16, but that's absolutely this comes forward. We do allow people to sign up, but they won't go to the front line and they won't see operations. They will be, you know, re- they will remain in this, this country and remain. Um, but also, not, most importantly, they need their parents' consent. And the same applies to getting married as well. Is that you right? You can get married, but you do need your parental consent ah. up to the age of 18. So 18 remains that important threshold. Um, and that's why it's applicable to then look at the voting as well. But as I say, I'm minded to say, in due course, let's consider it, but not in the heat of the passion of this Brexit discussion and the urgency, you know, obviously, to press but that reset button and have a general election. A, a massive uh, handicap to the Conservatives on the basis that most people, when they're young, um, perhaps you were even yourself, Tobias, most people start off as lefties with a great social conscience, and then as they get older with mortgages and children and the rest, they become conservatives. Wouldn't it be? A, wouldn't you lose votes? I've put this very question to youngsters when we have debates, and no doubt in the general election, the next general election, it will be a debate as well with, with various students and so forth. They themselves actually said, we're not ready for it. Many of them said, uh, really interesting, but I'm not sure I'm educated enough to make fair judgment about what's going on. If you give us that information, if you teach us more about politics, then yes, I'd like to use it. But as I say, many of them were hesitant to want to embrace it in the, in the passion that we've seen perhaps put forward by but, Labour for the reasons that you outlined. But do, do you think one argument for it perhaps is that, that if, it, if it's going to happen, then perhaps the Conservatives ought to claim ownership of it. I've quietly, and I'm sure you'll keep this to yourself, made those very, uh, the, that, that very message I've given to the Conservative Party as well. If we can be the ones to show that we are embracing what I think is change that's coming over the hill anyway, if you see what happened at the last um, Scottish referendum, it included 16-year-olds. We don't see it on the continent yet, but as I say, I think this is knocking on the door. It will happen in due course. But, but really- it's not something that should be rushed. It does need to come with a, with a fair debate. And it also needs to come with, I think, some education in schooling. If we are going to give 16 to 70 year olds 
the vote, it comes with an ability to better understand the political landscape that we face in this in this country. With all due respect to Tobias, I think this is bonkers. First of all, how cool is it to be a conservative when you're a teenager? I mean, even I was a socialist when I was a teenager. It's just ridiculous. You grow out of it. Um, the other thing I think that that Corbyn actually even trying to get that amendment on the on the vote was just sheer cynicism because he knew it was impossible to get through in time for a general election this year to get all of these people on the electoral register. It was just a simple way of him saying, hey, young, cool people, all you Gretas out there, I'm for you. And, and I think it probably worked. I can't help commenting that I saw there was um there was some younger person said that um, teenagers had had a greater right to a vote than people in their seventies and older who had nothing to contribute, which would mean that Jeremy Corbyn wouldn't be able to vote in this election himself. <laughs> that just infuriates me. That argument, you know, um, teenagers are not stakeholders. Um, you know, they're not paying into the system. They're not paying for their education and for anything. We are the people who are paying for it. And I think until, you know, I think they should get a job before they're allowed to vote. Is that too mean, Simon? Yes. So this will be the first December election for nearly a century. Simon, what implications will that have for the outcome? Well, opinion is divided on that. I mean, the, the last December election was in 1923. That's not a very good omen for the Conservatives because it led to the, the Conservatives lost and it led to the election of the first proper socialist government led by Ramsay MacDonald. But it's, it's a mixed picture. In 1918, at the end of the First World War, there was a Conservative Liberal landslide, but only after they formed an election pact, the so-called coupon election. But then on the other side, in 1910... An election was called because the Liberals and the Tories had exactly the same number of seats. And what happened after that election? They still had exactly the same number of seats. So it's so it's mixed as in terms of who's gonna who's gonna benefit from it. The other factor, of course, is uh, the Labour Party initially objected to this election, partly on the grounds that oh, people don't come out and vote, and there is a perception that Labour voters tend to be more likely to vote in person rather than vote by post. So the cold weather might affect affect the Labour vote. Um, but he, again, history on this is, is mixed. Um, in There were wintry, winter elections, not December, winter elections in 1950 and 1974 when the turnout was 80%. So it's not proven that people just won't vote in the cold weather. Will you go out to vote in the cold, Amanda? I imagine you've got a I, fur coat. <laughs> I would not wear. I would wear a fake fur coat. And, and yeah, I always vote. I think it's really, really important, even though um, Labour weighs the votes in my constituency. I think it's just the whole process of going out um, and, you know... It, Exerting your democratic right, it's really important. Mm, but what I'll about, wear waterproof mascara. Yeah, I suppose it'll be, it'll be the ultimate test of the snowflake generation. Will the snowflake generation vote if snowflakes are falling? <sighs> I think that they'll probably melt off into the pubs before they even get to the polling stations. I bumped into um, David Davies, former cabinet minister, ex-member of the SAS, known affectionately by his friends as the knuckle duster, and I was asking him about this, and he said it is going to be a problem because the 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 days will be the light the light hours are so short and he said that you simply can't 
canvas. You can't go knocking on doors in, in the darkness. People won't open their doors. But he did add it to say, and they certainly won't open their doors if they think I'm on the other side. Well, that's all we've got time for today. Don't forget, you'll be able to listen back to all our Mail Plus radio podcasts. And join us next week for more political chat and election updates. But for now, that's all from me, Simon Walters. And from me, Amanda Platel. Goodbye. Goodbye.